I don't know. They say that uh, humor is the highest form of communication. So I think to come into today's topic of is God trustworthy, um, we need to have a little bit of humor. So I read this week that um, that it takes six seconds for us to decide whether we can trust somebody. Six seconds, and we can we decide whether we will trust somebody um, with our heart, with our life, with our friendship, or whatever. So what I've got today is a few images, and we're going to give you six seconds to decide if you trust that person. All right, so if you trust your, that person, I want you to raise your hand, all right? So here we go. Here comes the first image of, we'll see, uh, do you trust, well, you get, who trusts this guy? Six seconds, all right? Well, some of us to trust him, some of us won't. Okay, let's at the next image. How about that guy? Whoa. Oh, Jerry trusts that guy, yeah. I trust that guy to maybe kiss Jerry, but, uh, or anybody else in the room, because, oh, how about this lady? Anybody want six seconds to trust? No. Oh, Chris says he trusts her. Kristen, you might want to talk to your husband. How about this next person? Here we go. Who trusts her? Definitely trust her. Well, there was like a, that, there's something there. Okay. Um, so this next couple, um, well, no voting here. Okay. No voting here. So show me the next one. Okay. How about the next one? It's kind of a unease in the room. Unease in the room right now. All right, this last one is a trick question, but you do have to raise your hand. So here we go. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> there was, uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. So a lot goes into determining who we trust and who we think is trustworthy and not trustworthy. Experience with the person, obviously. Um, previous prejudice and how we were raised, the things that we were taught, the things we were heard, how they dress, um, their personal expression, how they show their face. You know, if we had the woman who had all the makeup on and she was giving us this very alluring look versus the woman who was just very open and kind. Even our facial expressions help us uh, be trustworthy. So we can actually learn a lot about ourselves, though, by how we decide who is trustworthy, by the things that go into that decision. Who is trustworthy and who's not? So we're going to take this to the next level, though, because we're not here to talk about how we just trust one another, right? We're, it's like I have counseling appointments every now and then. I'm like, okay, I am not a counselor. I'm a pastor. We're here for pastoral counseling. And so we're going to make this spiritual. We're going to talk about God. We're going to talk about what the Lord says about this stuff. So this morning, we're going to take this discussion to the next level. We're going to kick it up a notch. And we're going to talk about God. Okay? <laughs> okay, well, that's why we're here, Pastor JV. I don't know why you even had to ask us. I've been, I was confused in the beginning. Now I know what we're doing. All right, so A.W. Tozer once famously said that what comes into, the first thing that comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The very first thing that pops into your head when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the truth of what you really believe. It's not what you say you believe, and it's maybe even not what you do. It's what you think first when it pops into your head. Because our actions flow out of that thought most, more often than not. Our, our actions are most often based on our gut, right? What we feel deep down inside. And so what comes into our mind when we think about God often drives our actions. So far in this series, we've talked about the goodness of God. It's a goodness that's not diminished by the badness of our world. We've talked about God as our Father, a good Father who loves us constantly, consistently, and watches over us and cares for us. Last week we talked about God being generous, how God treats us or trusts us with his wealth. He gives us his wealth. Everything we have is from him. 
But this week, we're going to flip that on its ear. And we're going to talk about God trusts us with his stuff. Do we trust God in return? And here's the bigger question. When I started thinking about this, I, I thought, you know what? There is like a thousand million sermons online and everywhere else about trust God, trust God, trust God. We can almost all quote, quote Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and not on your own understanding. And in all of, what your, all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will, let's finish the sentence, make your path straight. Exactly. So we hear these sermons over and over again. I have heard a million of them and I've preached at least 500 million of them. Trust Jesus, trust God, trust God, trust God. But I never stop to ask the question, is God trustworthy? I was like, whoa. Now we can just say yes and the sermon's over and we can all go home, right? All right, short answer. We're done. We're out of here. We can go catch the Seahawks game. Can God be trusted? That's the big question. He is trusting us, but can we trust him? What does our gut say? What does our actions say? Again, trust is not something that comes easily in our culture, especially now when we're living in a time of instability and uncertainty. Between the constant threat of shootings in malls and in schools and in public places, with terror attacks, with presidential debates, we're forced to ask, can the financial markets hold up? Will, will our culture remain stable? Will our economy remain stable? Will our government remain stable? Then there's the race issues that come in. Can we trust the people that are entrusted with our protection to actually protect us? Can we trust the presidential candidates with the leadership of the most powerful army and, and uh, weapons in the world? Can we trust the police? We have all of these questions surrounding us. And in the middle of that, you have the church saying, you need to trust God, but can you trust him? Trust is an expensive commodity that we measure out carefully. We, we dole it out in little pieces with people that we have great experience with. And yet over and over again, the Bible calls us to trust God. And not just to trust God with a little bit, but to trust God with everything. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And lean not on your understanding. Abraham is called to trust God in Genesis. God says, go into the land I will show you. He doesn't give him a Google map. He doesn't send him, you know, text him the directions. He just says, go to the land I will show you. You got to trust me. I'm going to show you where it's at. And the Bible says that when he went, that was counted to him as righteousness. So we have this biblical call, just like Jesus saying, look, the birds of the air they're fed. They're cared for. How much more does your Father in Heaven care for you? Look at the flowers of the field. They're beautiful. They're robed in white and splendor, and not even the greatest king of all times, the most wealthy man in the universe, was clothed any better than them. God did all that for birds and flowers. How much more is he going to care for you? Trust God. There's a biblical call to trusting God. God wants you to trust him, but is he trustworthy? And again, the answer is a simple yes. But our human minds want something more, right? We want something more than just, yes, you can trust God. Thank you, Pastor Jamie. Now I can go home and rest at ease that God is trustworthy. In our world, trust is earned and not given, right? Am I right? It's something that we, we earn with one another. So let's look at the only clear portrait we have in, in the whole world of who God is. Let's look at Jesus, God's self-portrait. And determine if God is actually trustworthy. Spoiler alert. Here's what I'm going to tell you this morning, okay? Spoiler alert. I'm going to, I'm going to give you the whole sermon in a, in a sentence. Here's my big idea. Ready? That Jesus teaches us that God is for us, 
that God is unshakable and totally worthy of our trust. There's going to be two stories I want to look at, and we're going to do this pretty quickly. So the first one is in Luke 13, 10 through 17. If you want to open your Bibles with me to there, to that spot, I'm going to read it to you. I got two, right to the other spot here. Luke 13, 10 through 17. The first story is of a woman who was healed on the Sabbath day. Sabbath day, um, the Jewish celebration of the day off. So let's read this together. Now he, Jesus, was teaching on the Sabbath in one of the synagogues. And, to- and behold, there was a woman who had been had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hand on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. Good news, right? But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant, Because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered them, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. Father, I pray that we would discover how for us you really are, that we would see this morning from your word that you are trustworthy because you are on our side. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're one of these temple leader guys here who are not bad guys, just to be clear, these are not bad guys. These are the pastors of their day. Okay, this is me speaking. This is this is my my crew, my crowd. This is my cohort. Okay, we're together, and and these guys are my these are my boys. We're all alike. We all gone to school, and we're professional church leaders. This is what we do for a living. So these guys are my homies. I had to use that word. I don't know where it came from. It just it just welled up within me. Came out. Homies. These are my homies. So these guys aren't bad, even though they're made out to be bad in a way. They're like they're they're, they're the antithesis of Jesus, which says something about me. We'll just leave that as it is. So if you're one of the temple leaders, as I was reading this, I mean, this is what came to my mind. If you're one of these temple leaders, the lesson that you're going to learn from this story is this: Jesus is not trustworthy at all. <laughs> He's not trustworthy. Let's get the context straight here. Jesus is a rabbi. Okay, he's gone to school, probably with some of these guys. Right? They went to school together to learn the rabbi stuff, to learn how to be rabbis. If Jesus is easy, if we can follow Jesus, let me rephrase that. If, if Jesus was not formed, if Jesus didn't learn how to do the things that Jesus did and to be the person that Jesus was, he's not followable. So he had to be formed somehow. So Jesus went to school to learn the first five books of the Bible, to memorize them, just like every good Jewish boy. And to become a rabbi, he had to go to rabbi school. And he went to rabbi school and probably with some of these guys. And now Jesus was in high demand at this point, right? He was somebody that everybody wanted to hear speak. He was somebody that everyone wanted to see heal people. The crowds were following him. They were all gathered around him. So when these rabbis got a hold of Jesus and said, you know, call him up on the phone and probably called one of the disciples who was his, you know, personal secretary, kept his calendar for him. He said, we would like to schedule Jesus for a public speaking event at the synagogue in town. Oh, well, I don't know if he's going to make, you know, be able to make time for that. And they're like, oh, well, we went to school with Jesus, and just ask him. And so 
Jesus, you know, this guy that you went to school with, oh, sure, I can come, you know. So they set up this whole speaking engagement, and they got this big event, and Jesus is there, and they're all proud because they got the best speaker in town to come and share at their synagogue. And so Jesus is preaching, and they're sitting back, and they're excited. They love what's going on. This scenario would be just like if any department at the university brought in a high-end speaker to speak about their subject, a colleague, and to come and share about mathematics or physics or whatever. This is like Jesus is the epitome of the top of his field to talk about this stuff. This is somebody you can trust, somebody you went to school with, somebody that you know is what he's going to share because he's a rabbi just like you. And then Jesus drops this bomb right in the middle of this thing. These guys are like, we got a good speaker, this is going great. And then boom, the rule that every rabbi had to follow, which was to keep the Sabbath, right? We're not going to work on the Sabbath. Jesus breaks it right in the middle of his speech. I mean, he's like talking. He's preaching just like I'm preaching now. And he looks down and he sees the woman in the front row who is hunched over and can't even look up at him. And he's like, oh, thanks, Candy. Good job. <laughs> and he looks at her and he knows. He's like, woman, this disabling, this, hey, you are freed from your disabling spirit. And then he lays his hand on her and suddenly she straightens up after 18 years. And he heals her on the Sabbath day. So interestingly, it wasn't the healing that was the problem. It was the fact that he broke the Sabbath day. If he had, Jesus had come on a Tuesday evening and spoke and healed that woman on a Tuesday evening, no big deal. Everybody been, yay! On Thursday afternoon, yay! But a Saturday on the Sabbath, the day that he's not supposed to be working? Now, i got to tell you, who ever made up this rule about how to keep the Sabbath? They, did, they weren't pastors. They weren't pastors, because if they were, they would have known that Jesus just speaking that day was work. I'm a pastor. I know. That's what I'm doing right now. I'm working. I'm breaking the Sabbath. I'm working. The Sabbath was a good thing, though. Actually, I would say the Sabbath is a good thing, and I want you to make that distinction. Sabbath is not bad, and Jesus is not putting down the Sabbath. He's not destroying the Sabbath. In fact, in a way, he is promoting the Sabbath, because what he says to these, these leaders is this. Hey, you've got a donkey at home. This is a donkey that takes you to work every day. This is the donkey that plows your fields. This is the donkey that does all of these things. On your Sabbath day, you won't put him out there plowing the fields, and that's great. But you've tied him up over by the pasture, and your water is over by the shed. Which one of you is not, on the Sabbath day, going to go over to that donkey and untie him in kindness and take him over to the water so that he can drink? The Sabbath day is a day to be loosened and unbound by the things that bind us. The Sabbath day is a day to be freed. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing. Jesus was overcoming the legalism of the people to set somebody free. And that's what the Sabbath day is for. So to those religious leaders, Jesus was not trustworthy because he broke their trust. He, he broke with them. But... And to them, Jesus is like kind of like the pastor who preaches to you each week not to steal, don't steal, never, ever, ever steal. But then, after we take the offering, I would invite the ushers to come forward and take the money out of the basket and put it in my pocket right in front of you. Okay, <laughs> This is what Jesus is doing for these guys. Doing exactly the opposite of what he would teach them. It's not okay. All that makes great background. All of that makes... This is an interesting story, but we can miss the point in the midst of the interesting story. Because we often think Jesus is breaking the Sabbath or telling us we don't have to keep the Sabbath. 
It's Jesus who should be reciting, siding with the religious leaders, with the people that he went to school with, breaks with them. Because what he sees is pastors who are sitting down, watching people be bound in their sin, and bound in their brokenness, and bound by evil spirits, when they should be praying for people to set them free. And so he breaks with them to set this woman free. When we read this story, we see Jesus is powerful, powerful enough to heal. We see Jesus making a point about the Sabbath being for setting people free. And it's a gift for us. But we often miss the Jesus that's the advocate for that woman who is sitting down front when the pastors were ignoring him. We miss Jesus as the one who stands up for the one who is bound, whether it's the donkey or the woman with a disabling spirit. I think often people have a hard time trusting in God because they believe inside somewhere, whether they will articulate it or not, that this is one of the first things that come to their mind about God, is that God is against me and not for me. And that's because we so identify with our sin, and then we know God is against sin. Right? We so identify with sin. My sin is a part of me. My sin is a part of who I am. And if God is against sin, then he is against me. And we may not articulate that clearly, but inside, some part of us believes that God disapproves of who I am. But Jesus shows us a different picture of God. Not a God who disapproves of us, but a God who is able somehow to separate who we are from our sin and to love who we are. We will say all the time, hey, we love the sinner, but not sin. We love the sinner, but not the sin. You know what? I don't know anybody that can actually divide those two things. I mean, I, I do, we just can't do it. We just can't divide those two things. But God can. God can. And Jesus shows us that he does. He separates our sin from who we are. He separates our desires, our brokenness, our failures, our past. And he stands up for who we were intended to be. And he longs to set us free. He is for us. He was for this woman in this context. And he turned away from the people that he should have been siding with in, that, in this story to stand for the one who needed somebody to stand for him. He became the advocate instead of the adversary. 1 Timothy 1.5 says this, This is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance. How about that for an introduction to a sentence? This is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance. And here's the saying that Jesus Christ came to this world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I'm a great sinner. As your pastor, I am a sinner. And I am in need of grace. You are a sinner in need of grace. Each one of us has sinned. And yet, Christ came into the world to die for us while we were still sinners. He is for us. And he is not against us. Some of us come to church and we try to hide in the corner from God because we're afraid if God was to look, you know, look around, like not look at the worship team who's up here worshiping him, like he might like turn his head and see me sitting in the corner and go, oh, there's sin in the room. We hide. Some of us just try to hide because we're introverts. Welcome to church, introverts. I called you out and now you're uncomfortable. I'm sorry. But many of us in our sin, we'll try to cover it up however we can. We try to cover it up with good words. We try to cover it up with good behavior. We try to cover it up with good looks. Is it working? And yet God looks and he sees us. I've said to you before that if you had a perfect window on my heart, like 
if I was the cow that they have at WSU that has the big hole in his side so you can look inside his stomach, that's gross. I don't know why they would do that. But if, you, if I had like a window on my stomach where you could look into my soul, you would not approve of everything you see there. I don't approve of everything that I see there. God certainly doesn't approve of everything he sees there. And yet he approves of me. And yet he loves me. And yet he stands for me. God has the same window on each and every single one of you. And as uncomfortable as that seems, the gaze that is upon you right now, the eyes of heaven looking down on you in this room, is a smile on the face of God. Because he is for you. He's for you. In the midst of your pain, in the midst of your hurt, in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of your sin, in the midst of all of those things, he is for you. Jesus shows us a God that is for us, a God that longs to set us free. He is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us, the Old Testament says? Who? Who could stand against us? Not even our own sin. And more than this, more than just God is for us, the second thing I want to show you is that God is never, ever shaken. When I was a kid growing up in Alaska, earthquakes were a very, very common thing. I remember sitting upstairs in a house one day, and we could hear the rumble coming, and we stood up and went to the window and looked out the window and literally watched the ground make waves. Weirdest thing I ever saw. It was like an like eight-point earthquake. It was pretty hot, pretty big, and it was scary. So a number of years after I left Alaska, Heidi and I were uh, at our pastor's house in Marysville. This was during the Nisqually earthquake of uh, 2000. I got the year written down here, 2001 or two or something like that. It was a it was a 4.4 earthquake in that area. And so we were in our pastor's house. And he had never been in an earthquake before. And Heidi had never really been in an earthquake quite like this. It was a big earthquake for the area. That thing, we heard it coming. I heard it first. I'm like, because it sounds like a train coming. And I'm like tuned to this as a kid. So I know that it's coming. I hear it coming. And everybody kind of got quiet. So what's that sound? I go, that's an earthquake. And then it went boom. And it hit the house. And the house is shaking. Everybody freaks out but me. I'm sitting in the couch. I kind of lean back and I put my, my arms up and I'm like, ah, I think it's about four. And there, I mean, I'm like, I nailed it. I was so proud of myself. I'm like, I nailed it. I'm like, I could, I'm a human Richter scale. Like, so, and like everybody else is like panicking. They have like a three-year-old son at the time. They're running around the house trying to find him. They're like standing in corners. And the, the, my pastor and his son went and laid down in the bathtub and they're all freaking out. And then Heidi's looking at me like, what do I do? Do I freak out or do I just be calm? I don't know what to do. I'm like, it's going to be okay. And eventually it ended and it was all right. I'm used to it. I was used to it. Earthquakes are disturbing to people. <laughs> That's all I was going to say there. There's no, there's no finish to that sentence. You got, you, you write that in your notes? Okay. <laughs> Earthquakes are disturbing to people. Earthquakes are disturbing to people because the very thing that is supposed to be immovable is clearly moving. The very thing that is the foundation and is supposed to be solid, holding everything up, is shaking. And it calls into question everything around us. The houses that we build, the buildings that we're in, the, the ground. Is it, I mean, it going to split open? Am I going to fall into it? The thing that is supposed to be most solid in our world proves to not be. And it's shaking and it's coming apart. Now, this, let's apply this to life. Everyone's life is built on something. You guys saw that coming, right? mile away, Jamie. It was like, you're leading up to it. We saw it coming. 
Everyone's life is built on something. Here's how Jesus describes it in Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does, does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and the earthquakes came and they beat up that house, but the house did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew, and the earthquake came, and it beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. We don't like things to be unstable or risky or shaky in any way. We have people specifically trained to help us avoid risk. One of them is our financial managers, right? We entrust with them our money, and their whole job is to help us manage that money in the least amount of risk that, or that with the amount of risk we are comfortable with, so the least amount of risk of losing our money, but the greatest amount of risk so that we can gain our money. And, and that's what they do. Financial advisors know how risky the markets are. And when you sit down with one of these guys, they're going to ask you, how much risk are you comfortable with? And in your mind, you're thinking, zero, zero risk. I have $10, and I need to invest this $10, and it needs to make me as much money as possible, but I don't want to lose my $10. And in his mind, he's thinking, it's 10 bucks. Let's just blow it and see what happens. You know, he's like, I don't care. It's not even my money. I've got no emotional attachment to this thing. Let's just invest it however we can and, you know, make lots of money. Thankfully, my financial advisor has never said that to me. I think that might mean that he's trustworthy. It's one thing to trust your money with somebody. As somebody who's educated, who's fully informed, who's watching the markets, who knows how things are performing. But it's totally another to trust your entire life with somebody. What do you trust the security of your life with? Do you trust it in family, friends, work, stability, money, God? Jesus is saying here is that if we trust our lives to anything but God, anything but God, in his words to us, we're building our life on something less than solid. Think about how you feel. Think about this. How do you feel when the things around you fail? When your spouse blows it with you? When your kids mess up, what about when your boss comes to you and says, we can't afford to pay you anymore, our business is not working out, or your performance hasn't met up to standard, or we don't have a job for you anymore? How do you feel when that kind of stuff happens? Sometimes we panic. We run for the bathtub, try to hide in it. We try to find a door frame somewhere. The strongest places in our life, we go hide, we cower in fear. Sometimes we just run around not knowing what to do, in a panic, looking for a secure place. But if we look at Jesus, Jesus is just hanging out on the couch saying, trust me. He's just hanging out on the couch saying, trust in me. Everything else is shaking, I know it. But God's words, my care for you, my heart for you, it doesn't change. It's unshakable. It's risky to trust your life to the things that are not solid. I once went rock climbing with a friend, and the only thing that we could find to attach a rope to was a tree at the top of the cliff. So we went ahead and spent all the time to set it up and went back down to the bottom of the cliff. And we thought, hey, we better test this out. So we started pulling on it, and dirt started coming off the cliff. And then we saw tree roots. And we're like, maybe we shouldn't trust our life to this. Seems like a good idea. It was risky. As risky as that is, the riskiest thing that we can do in our lives is to trust our life to anything or anyone other than God especially ourselves, because we are the best managers of our own life of anybody. 
we're the one we look to to take care of things more often than not. And yet, that is one of the riskiest things we can do. God is not scared what scares us. He doesn't see our problems and freak out. God is not shaken by the things that shake us. Jesus can be a foundation, a solid rock that we build our lives on. Jesus is called the cornerstone in the Bible, someone that we can put our trust in without fear of disappointment, something that we can build our lives on. God is our rock. God is our fortress, our refuge, and our strength, a very present help in times of trouble. He is unshakable. So build your life on Jesus one day at a time. Confess your trust in him every day. Trust in his will for your life each day. And when the earthquakes come, when the waters rage, and when your life falls apart, you'll find that God is unshakable. So God is for us, and God is unshakable. These are two things that Jesus teaches us about God, that he is trustworthy. So I was like, hey, that's awesome. There's a sermon. Done. Go home, right? Here's the thing. I was looking at that, and I'm like, but wait a minute. I know this stuff. I'm tired of the pastor preaching the same thing over and over again. I know that stuff. I, I know that God is trustworthy. I can go home. And many of you, that's the case. I'm proud of you. Thank you. And you can probably stop listening right now. However, I thought, and I thought about this. I'm like, yeah, I know this stuff. But guess what? I still don't trust God. To be honest, I, I don't trust God with everything. There's not one big thing in my life right now. This one big area that my finances or something like that where I'm like, oh, I'm just not trusting God. But when I look at my life, I see that there are 150 little places, 150 little decisions, how I parent my kids, how I date my wife, how I, how I uh, encourage you to grow in your faith, all these little decisions that I'm busy trying to work out the details and make it work and not trusting God to do it. That's my gut response. So why? Why do I not trust God? We still, each of us, knowing that God is trustworthy, knowing that he's unshakable, knowing that he's for us, we still have a hard time trusting God with our lives. We're still not quite sure somehow, for some reason, whether we can actually trust him. When I sat with my life group this last week, we had to ask this question of ourselves as we were reading these different texts and going, well, do we really trust God? It's easy to express a trust on an intellectual level, right? Just be like, oh yeah, I Definitely, God is trustworthy. But on a gut-heart level, on a gut-heart level, do we really trust Him? So I thought through, how do we build trust as people? How do we do that? How can we build trust with God? How can we begin to set our trust on Him? How do we do it with one another? So and here's what I found. First of all, there are stories that build trust. In other words, People tend to trust a person that somebody else trusts, right? In other words, you trust me, so you're likely to trust my mechanic. You trust me, so you're likely to trust my plumber. I get asked that all the time. People move into town, and they're like, hey, pastor, who's your plumber? Hey, pastor, who's your mechanic? Hey, pastor, who's this? You know? And so I can make recommendations on that, and they'll trust them. Hey, pastor, who's your dentist? Okay, let's not, let's not go too far, right? Nobody trusts dentists. It drills in your mouth. When I first started getting to know God, I had absolutely no amount of evidence that God was trustworthy whatsoever. The Bible was meaningless. I was just a kid. All I could do was look at the stories that were being presented to me and really look at the lives of the people around me. 
The stories, they were incredible. The stories, they were cool. But it was the people that were around me that actually taught me to begin to trust in God. I remember there was an old woman in our church. She was crippled for many, many years. She was actually a survivor of a concentration camp. Um, and she had been crippled for many years, partly by that experience and partly by a car accident. And uh, her knees didn't work well. And so she would walk with this walker and barely like, like just drag herself through the, the church. And she prayed faithfully every day that God would heal her. And I'm looking at that story. I'm going, is God really trustworthy with this? Would God even be good enough or care enough about this? I mean, there's a lot of big things going on, right? I mean, we get earthquakes all the time. We can pray about that. But this woman, she's, it's just the way things are going to be. One day, she comes to church, and she is carrying her walker. She had been praying for years, and she gathered with some friends, and they just said, you know, I feel like the Lord wants to heal you today. And they prayed, and I'm like, that's crazy, first of all. After years of praying, they'd say, I feel like God wants to heal you right now. And then they pray for her. She comes to church literally carrying the dang walker, and they hang it on the cross at the back of the church. And over the course of a few years, that cross got covered with canes and walkers and wheelchairs underneath it. And I'm looking at these stories and these crazy people that should be hobbling, jogging the aisles. This literally happened. This is stuff, I mean, I'm not making this up. God still, still heals. And I looked at those stories, and it began to allow me to trust God with my stuff. I looked at my parents. They were totally not Christians. We had gone to church for years just because they wanted to raise their son in a good environment. And I watched them encounter God for the first time. I watched the demeanor on my parents change from fear and concern and constant worry about our finances to joy, to happiness, to a smile on their face. I watched how they treated each other differently. I watched how they treated me a little differently. I have to be honest about my childhood. While there was hard things, I look at that time and I say, God did something in them. He must be real. He must be real. And maybe I can trust him. And even now, my faith is built by your stories. When I see God working in your life, when I see you change, when I see you step out and risk something, to take a risk with your faith, to take a risk with your heart, to, to try something new for Jesus, my faith is built. My trust in God is built by you. The second way we build trust with God. So the first we look at each other's stories. The second way is daily interaction. The second way people determine trust is through consistent daily interactions. So a person proves himself trustworthy by their consistent actions, like doing the same thing well over and over again, by doing what they say they will do. Their yes is yes, their no is no. They tell you the truth, they're honest, speaking from their heart and honoring their promises, right? I trust in God, and I'm working on trusting in God because I know by his daily interactions with me that I can trust him. Thinking over my life, I realize that Jesus has never once left me in the lurch. Never once. I can think of times where I thought God wasn't there. I can think of times where I thought, oh, gee, Elvis has left the building. This is the darkest moment of my life. Where are you, God? You are definitely gone. But I look back, and I see that God isn't gone. He's just being quiet with me. But God hasn't left. He's very present. He's very real. And I can trust him because he is always with me. There are the answered prayers to heal this person, to provide for our family, to break my heart, to send me out. God has answered every one of my prayers. 
sometimes yes, sometimes no, sometimes we're just going to wait a little while on this one. Sometimes the answers seem a long time in coming. I keep asking, but I want you to know God still answers my prayers. God has never broken a promise to me. Every promise of the scripture that he has promised to me has either come to fulfillment or is coming, because I believe it. God has never lied to me, never once. He's never changed his opinion of me, never once. He has constantly shown me love, mercy, grace, blessings in 10,000 ways. God is consistent. He's trustworthy. But why do I still struggle? Why do I still struggle? The second question I had to ask is, still, why? first one is, why? Why do I struggle? The second one is, why? Why do I struggle? I ask it twice. Why am I struggling with this, God? It's just like, why do I keep struggling? Why do pastors have to keep preaching this? Why do we have to keep telling ourselves? Why do we have to hear it over and over again? Why? I think there's three good reasons. Now, this is from my small group again. I don't think it's because God isn't trustworthy. I think, first of all, it's because of our egos. We want to prove that we can do it ourselves. We don't actually need God, so we won't trust Him and stuff. I don't need anyone or anything. Jesus is handling heaven. I've got earth. I know God could handle this, but I'm pretty sure that I could handle it too. Um, maybe we're just too busy trusting in our own abilities, trusting in our own goodness, trusting in our own plan to trust in God. To take the time. We're busy working out our plans to even think, oh wait, do I, am I trusting God with this? We don't stop to start there. Warning, the riskiest thing you can do with your life is to trust it in, for, to anything other than Jesus. Second one, um, my friend Audrey pointed this one out, is storms. You know the story in the, in the New Testament of, of, of Jesus walking on the stormy water and the disciples are all on the boat. They all look and like, it's a ghost. And Jesus is like, it's not a ghost, it's me. And Peter's like, well, if it's really you, tell me to walk on the water. <laughs> Who thinks to do that, right? Like, water is something that is definitely not solid, right? <laughs> something, that is something that we don't walk on, particularly stormy water going up and down. Up and, I'm seasick thinking about this. And, and Peter's like, let me walk to you on this. And, and Jesus is like, well, come on, let's do it. Come walk on the water with me. And so Peter gets out and he walks on the water, crazy person. And he walks toward Jesus, and what happens is he stops looking at Jesus. He looks over because he sees a big wave, and then he hears the howling wind, and then he realizes that water is not solid, and he's sinking, okay? He takes his eyes off of his advocate and puts them on his adversary. His eyes are in the wrong place. He sees, has a bigger picture of the storm than he has of Jesus. Storms cause us to not trust us not trust our lives to God. And lastly is this. We have a hard time trusting God because we want to minimize risk. And we realize that God is risky. God is very risky. Um, I'm going to, yeah, I'll just tell this little quick illustration. You know, we, we go to the rocks down at the river and we like to jump in into the water and stuff. And when we first started doing this, we found out we, we, there was this whole study, it was on NPR, uh, where they are studying, I guess, some evolutionary process or something, but women find men who are willing to jump off of rocks more attractive than men who won't. Which is why I jump off the rocks, right? For my wife, she's out there in the water, and I'm jumping off the rocks. 
And they, they trace to this whole evolutionary thing, like if dinosaurs are chasing you and there, you have a cliff, you have a choice between being eaten by the dinosaur or jumping off the cliff into the river. If you jump off into the river, you're more likely to survive. So for some reason, evolutionarily, you know, Jandy finds that more attractive, okay? You sit in the front, you're just going to get nailed every time. Um, so crazy thing, but that only lasts right up to the point where the ring hits the finger and the baby comes home, Right? So you get married and you have a kid and suddenly the behavior that got you married in the first place is very unattractive because you're jumping off the rocks. Now you're not like saving your life. Now you're risking the security of your whole family, right? You're going to leave us fatherless. You're going to leave us husbandless. There's no way you can do this. So at this point, it becomes very unattractive. Apparently evolution involves risk management, right? Some of you are thinking... That Jesus is trustworthy, but he's proven himself to be risky. Jesus says in Luke 9, If anyone who would come after me must take up his cross, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That sounds like risky behavior to me. Right? You're like, it sounds like he's asking us to bet it all, put all of our chips on the table, to trust him. And then he calls people to Africa, where they don't have real toilets. You know, he calls them to move to places like Washtakna. Also, no toilets. Right? He calls us to go places to take God's love to places where there are no real showers or shopping malls or, heaven forbid, restaurants. There's nothing like fine dining as McDonald's, right? There are places in the world like this, and he keeps calling people out to that. And we watch people go, and they seem so happy and fulfilled. We saw a picture of Will and Brianna who were called to go to Africa on the Mercy ships, and they are training. And the, the, the look on their face right now, I have to tell you, I have never seen them happier in their lives. They're just the, this thrill on their face that I am serving God with my life. And it's, they've stepped out into this great risky unknown, and yet there's this great joy. But here's the thing. The third way that people build trust with one another is to take a risk. All relationship involves and revolves around risk. You get to know somebody a little bit and you start to trust them. But we always give a little bit more than what was earned. We give a little more trust than what was earned. We raise the ante a little bit. And we risk a little bit more and we risk a little bit more. And that's how we build trust. When I think about the places that I'm not trusting God, it's not the big things, it's the little things. If I'm real honest, there's a thousand of them. These are the areas of my life where I feel like I've got this. But God is saying, hey, why don't you push that trust toward me? Take a little bit of a risk with me. Trust me with a little bit more. So here's my closing challenge to you today. We're going to sing a song. And I close, and we're going to go home, and we're going to celebrate the Cougars win, and we're going to watch the Seahawks, and we're going to have a great Sunday afternoon, and we're going to enjoy our Sabbath. But the Lord is asking us this morning to trust in Him. And I have a feeling that some of us in this room right now, God has asked you to take a risk. And you've looked at it and you said, it's too risky. I can't trust you with that. It's too risky. I can't trust you with that. And God wants you to stand up and say, all right, I'll trust you. I'll step out. Trust you. Step out of the boat. Trust it. It's stormy, but I'm going to trust it. Jesus, this morning, as you're speaking to us, I pray that we would respond to you from the heart. 
that we would hear your voice and you're called to trust us. We would look at the evidence and we'd say, yeah, you're trustworthy, but I still need to take this risk. And we would go ahead and trust you with our hearts. Amen. So here's what I want you to do. Before you stand up, before we sing, you have a bulletin. There's like space to write in it. You've taken all these copious notes about earthquakes. They're scary. People don't like them. Just find a space anywhere on your notes. And as the worship team sings this song, I want you to write down just one thing, something small. Maybe it's something big. Some place where you need to trust God this week. This week. And I want you to write it down. Like, okay, this is the place where I need to try. It's an exam. Maybe it's maybe it's a situation at work. Maybe it's a parenting. Maybe it's, I don't know what. But think about that. Write it down. Like, physically write it down. And commit to trust God with that thing. And then we're going to pray in just a minute. So they're going to sing. They're going to sing one song. And then we're going to pray. And then we're going to actually take these before the Lord. We're going to lift them up and say, God, I trust you with them. And my challenge is, God is trustworthy, and I believe that that prayer will be answered. God's going to answer it. Maybe not this week, but I believe that he will. And you need to have a physical evidence, physical evidence of how God proved himself trustworthy to you. So as we sing, write that down. Can you do that?